Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. Um, Happy New Year, everybody. I hope everybody enjoyed the, uh, the holiday season. Um, played a lot of video games, you know, hung out with some family, did all, you know, did all the Christmas and New Year stuff. Um, I certainly did. I had a, a lovely time. I apologize for, you know, not doing new shows, but, you know, I have lots of things to do. Um, but we're back. We're back. Uh, great guest today. I've got uh, Jim Rossignol on the show today. Jim is a veteran video games journalist. He was originally on the PC Gamer before becoming one of the founding members of the amazing Rock Paper Shotgun website. Uh, he's since gone on to found Big Robot Games, and he's made his own uh, bunch of games, including Sir, You Are Being Hunted and The Signal from Tolva. Uh, and it's a brilliant chat. Like I really thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking with Jim. You know, for someone who is you know such a, a great video game writer and spent so much of his life writing about video games is clearly someone who thinks very deeply about them and to have kind of gone on to make his own I think it's a it's a fascinating interview and a, and a brilliant guest so I've kind of hinted um, uh, a few times during previous episodes about some exciting news that might be coming up um, and I'm now able to reveal that exciting news because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a, a definite thing uh, so on the 20th of January at 6pm I'll be doing a live checkpoint show um, from Nottingham uh, it's part of the, the All Your Bass video game music festival, which is being put on by the National Video Game Arcade, which I highly recommend anyone visits. It's an amazing place to, to go. Uh, and the festival itself looks looks amazing. They've got Rob Hubbard, the Commodore 64 video game music pioneer. They've got uh, Masaya Matsura, the creator of Parappa the Rapper, and Vib Ribbon, and Jessica Curry from the Chinese Room, and a whole host of kind of video game music luminaries giving talks and, and doing sets, uh, and I'm really thrilled to be uh, a part of it. So I'll be doing like a live show all about video game music and about the festival with a roundtable panel of, of guests. Hopefully it'll be recorded too, so I'll be able to, to release it and you can listen to it as an episode. But if you are in the area and you'd like to come along, please do um, and and do come and say hello as well. You can find the details at um, it's thenva.com is the National Video Game Arcade website and has all the details there. Please do say hello if you happen to come along. It'd be, uh, it'd be lovely to meet you. And, you know, speaking of fans of the show, if you are a fan of the show, please do rate and review the show on iTunes. It's the the best way of encouraging new people to discover the show, as well as just sharing it around on social media or telling a friend, IRL. Um, and if you really like the show, there's a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. Any and all donations are very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can. It's checkpointspodcast at gmail.com or it's at checkpointshow on Twitter or it's checkpointspodcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Um, uh, before before I go, actually, one more quick recommendation because it's not going to be there for long. Uh, there's a, a radio play on the iPlayer at the moment called Game Over by Emily Short, which is uh, all about video game development. I thought it was terrific. Uh, do check that out. Okay. I'll be back next week, as always, with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Uh, well, let's let's just go into it then, Jim. I'll do I'll do the formal introduction for the sake of ceremony. So, Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if you don't mind. Would you introduce yourself? So my name is Jim Rossignol. Um, some people may remember me from PC Gamer. Um, I wrote for and worked for for, for several years back in the day. Um, then I founded Rock Paper Shotgun, um, which I worked for. Well, I worked with for about ten years. Um, and I've now left Rock Paper Shotgun. Um, the founders having sold it to the Eurogamer Network. Um, and during that time, I also started up 
a small game studio called Big Robot, uh, which is basically my full-time job these days. Um, and we've made several games at this point. Uh, the best known is probably Sir, You're Being Hunted. Uh, and the most recent is The Signal from Tolva, which we are still working on currently. Exciting. Um, I, I should say up front here, just for full disclosure, I haven't played any of your games, Jim. Um, oh, dear. I'm sorry. The, the main reason for that is because I've got a really old Mac, um, and they don't run. They don't run well on Mac, no. Nothing, nothing, I mean, nothing really runs. My Mac is basically a Hearthstone machine, and that that's it in terms of video games, um, which is a shame. That's a shame. But they get, look amazing. Thank you. Get yourself a big, fat uh, gaming PC, I reckon. I'm quite tempted. I'm quite tempted. I think, um, I mean, these days I sort of recommend to everyone that they get um, uh, a PC just on the basis that the amount of games and the back catalogue going so far back on Steam and other portals is so huge now. Yeah. That, uh, I don't know, like, obviously I play on console as well. And I, I think I own pretty much every console that's ever come out. But PC just... I don't know, it's just a, it's just a richer field of stuff and, it's, and when you can buy you know like a, a decent gaming laptop now that just folds up and goes away on a bookshelf um you know i think it's i think i think the thing that people always kind of balk at is that cost you know oh our pc costs a lot of money yeah but you know a, a one that can play most games doesn't cost that much more than a console um and you're probably going to make it back in how cheap pc games are generally i mean the, the, the console games are especially downloadable ones, are still mm, in that sort of dubiously priced range, in, in my opinion. No, absolutely. Although I have noticed, actually, in the last sort of... Certainly the last sort of month, definitely, um, PS4 more and more seem to be doing the kind of... the like never-ending sale that Steam kind of does. There's, there's endless discounts, just particularly on kind of indie games and stuff. And that just that opens up a whole world of... Not problems, because it's not a problem to have too many games to play. Um, no, certainly, but I mean, I think yeah, I, I think the I think the PlayStation Store has always been a bit a bit wonky and and, and a bit sort of difficult, you know, sort of a bit inaccessible and, and not particularly well structured. So I think the more they can do to, um, the more they can do to improve that and and push indie stuff to the front, then uh, the better it will be for everyone. Absolutely. Um. So so I want to speak briefly actually about PC Gamer because I spoke to uh, Will Luton a couple of episodes ago, um, mm. who was obviously PC Zone. Were you both? on conflicting sides at the same time um i th i think we overlapped briefly for like a few months but they, they yeah it, it wasn't um it wasn't a huge rivalry by the time i was on there to be honest i think the the real the, the, the real rivalry between zone and um pc gamer was earlier than, than when i was there it was sort of at the end of the 90s i think yeah absolutely when, you know when the cover disc mag ruled supreme at that point you know it was pretty intense but uh, i think as magazines were fading by the by the point i joined them that you know the rivalries were fading with them yeah see i this sort of passed me by this whole thing and the more people i've spoken to on the show like i think cara ellison in particular was talking about it and, and kieran gillen obviously like it just how kind of intense the rivalry was and will especially had so many like just unbelievable stories of kind of sub subterfuge and sabotage between the magazines mm. um, yeah i think nuts. it was it was it was it was pretty uh it, i mean i i heard a lot of those sort of same stories but yeah certainly by the time i joined i think uh the i think i think pc gamer had basically won the war by that point and, and in fact i think the highest <laughs> the highest ever pc gamer circulation was something like a month before i joined uh pc gamer and then it was just a downward slope <laughs> <laughs> after that because the internet had been invented and uh yeah but i mean history you clearly sort of um rode that wave though with the rps thing was that was that just purely a case of like you can see the writing on the wall let's do this now Sort of. I mean, at the time, it didn't seem it didn't seem like a wise proposition. People sort of raised their eyebrows at the idea of us setting up something independent and making it about PC games. Because at that point, I mean, remember this is ten years ago, um, or over ten years ago now. It wasn't it wasn't clear that the PC was going to work as a format uh, going forward. I think it was it was it was just at the point where 
Um, so, I mean, it was ju- just as the orange box came out, right? Yeah. So it was just at the point where things started to turn and Steam started to become, you know, not just sort of dominant in the PC space, but actually rebuilding the PC space. Absolutely, because it was mostly like WoW and The Sims. Like that was that era of PC gaming. That was kind of, those were the kind of headliners, at least. There wasn't as rich of a kind of ecosystem. No, exactly. I mean, and it, it, it was all a bit shaky at that point because it wasn't clear what was happening with MMOs. You know, they'd, they'd done really well, but it started to wane. Um, and so, yeah, people were really skeptical that, that we were going to make something of it. And, and, and I think people were skeptical even about PC as a format at that point. I think yeah. it was, you know, there, there, there was this joke we had right at the start of, uh, of, of RPS about, you know, P- PC gaming is dead, which doesn't even make sense to people now. They're like, what? You know, because it's just this incredible. Uh, yeah. So, so what were you thinking though? <laughs> like, like well, did you know that wasn't. there was more coming? Or yeah, I mean, we we knew it wasn't, and we knew, you know, we could see what was happening in indie games. We could see what was happening in digital distribution. We could see what Valve were doing with uh, with Steam, and you know, the, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on at that point that just made it, you know, you know and but Minecraft, you know, wasn't wasn't far behind. It became it became pretty clear uh, that we that we could continue to cover PC games and that um, you know we could do it effectively. And the other the mad thing was, and this this seems bizarre now, but there was very little detailed coverage of PC games outside those few magazines that existed. Yeah, uh, there, you know, PC Gamer barely had a website at that point and and very rarely updated it. So there wasn't that much coverage 10 years ago. Um, and, and we just jumped on that and thought, well, we can definitely make something of it. And not only that, though, but I think we'd all worked as freelancers for probably sort of seven or eight years at that point. Um, and we just felt like we needed to own something. You know, we got a bit sort of fed up of watching publishers and uh, you know, big companies make mistakes and sometimes make mistakes on our behalf and yeah. just felt like we just needed to own whatever we were going to do in the future. And the only way to do that was to set up a site and then make it make it successful and make it make money, which we did. Well done. Um, but, I mean, it wasn't just a PC thing, though. It was like, I think RPS was uh, not to be sort of um, too overly complimentary. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. But the, the the kind of the range and styles of writing that RPS like was able to do, I think, has genuinely kind of shifted a, a lot of people's expectations of what game writing is. Like even to this day, like there's still the kind of not it, it's not just the standard you know review preview sort of style of website. You know, there, there's all kinds of amazing different columns and mm. ways of looking at games. Well, that I th- I think at that point. The general trend shifted towards um, uh, a sort of more subjective, more open style. Anyway, you know, across across media, and I, I mean, obviously, Kieran's new games journalism uh, manifesto was at the heart of that stuff, yeah. and you know, so that put up, put us at the centre of that stuff. But I think that shift had been going on for a few years. Um, I certainly remember Mark Donald, who was uh, the, the uh, PC game editor just after I left. Um, he he commissioned a lot of that kind of thing. I mean, he he commissioned sort of I think it was an eight-page Eve Online article from me um, that was just sort of was just a sort of story of of, of the things we got up to, um, and we did similar ones for Planet Side and things like that. So those sort of big explorational articles, and he was he was very interested in commissioning that kind of stuff. And I think um, I think the sort of idea that there was a sort of formal preview review structure was 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 almost dead by that point already um and you and certainly sites like um i mean it certainly lost its way but the the escapist was set up with that in mind they wanted yeah, absolutely to, they wanted to do sort of essay style um journalism and criticism and reporting um on that basis and i remember having a conversation with the founders of that um, at the time and, and talking about you know the, the kind of stuff they were looking for and that was where they wanted to go um and i think i, th- I almost feel like it's inevitable you know it was, it was a sort of um you can't expect writers who are maturing to just churn out the same old kind Absolutely. of preview stuff um through their whole career you know they're, they're going to want to experiment with other stuff and they're going to want to uh, acknowledge the sort of breadth and depth of what you know writing about any subject entails and you know there's so much of that stuff I mean certainly when I was sort of growing up as a writer um, 
I would go and read collections of uh, essays and journalism from other writers and then think about how the things they had done and the things they had said and how they'd done it and how they'd said it could apply to stuff that um that i was writing about games yeah um and it, you know it came down to you know if someone was writing something brilliant about uh, architecture and building that you could you could almost sort of replace the stuff that they were saying about you know you, you replace the way in which they approached um discussing you know an architect's work with that of a game designer's work you know there were so there were so many there was so there, there was so much sort of depth and variety in um you know, the history of writing and and then the history of sort of criticism and journalism that it, it's it's it becomes it becomes crazy to ignore it essentially um, i i wonder like do you think there's any kind of correlation between the, that kind of style of of writing or, or at least kind of the the breadth of ways you can approach writing and specifically pc gaming because like i remember speaking to um i had uh, chris swellentrop on the show who used to write for New York Times and stuff, and he he introduced mm. me to this whole world of kind of late eighties, early nineties kind of video game coverage. I think it was in the New York Times, uh, several other kind of sort of larger scope magazines, and it, they were really inc- really incredible stuff. Mm. But it was all yeah. based around PC gaming specifically, because I guess there's always been that kind of gap between PC gaming is for grown ups, so to speak. Like these amazing essays about kind of Mist and. Um, I think early Command and Conquer as well. Like, do you think there's any correlation between the two um, platforms? I suppose, and the type of writing you're able to do. Well, maybe. I think. I think partly it's that. And maybe less so now, obviously, but just at the time, I guess. Well, and no, I think it still stands up now to an extent because I feel like um, the the access that people get to indie development and PC development tends to be a, a little, still a little less sort of rigidly. Uh, structured into the you know, the sort of public relations structure that um, that surrounds console games, yeah, uh, particularly big console games. You know, like no no one's ever really been able to write that kind of big journalistic expose of uh, Rockstar and GTA because they absolutely control everything about their comms all of the time. Yeah, um, and I think that's true to a you know to a large extent when you're dealing with any large company that, that stuff sort of stuff becomes very difficult and so you have to write about them in different ways um but, but, that, but perhaps you know perhaps the personalities are just sort of closer to the surface in pc gaming but i think the other side of that is that the diversity of um things that people played in pc gaming is broader and has always been it's perhaps slightly less so now but certainly you know how do you cover an mmo that people play for hundreds or thousands of hours you know how, how do you cover the guy who plays a submarine simulator in real time yeah you know a, a, a you know a normal review um or even an interview just doesn't cut it really you need you need to sort of go deeper and um i think people have done that in pc gaming because those kind of weird outliers are there uh, and 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 the, and the and it's because you know the pc is a relatively open platform therefore that kind of stuff can happen and you know even the smallest audiences can be supported with their you know their incredibly niche tastes and that isn't necessarily true for um a, a console uh, audience or market that needs to be you know it, it, for the masses essentially absolutely um well let's like talking of, of niche tastes let's cycle back then jim and uh if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? It was Chucky Egg on an Amstrad CPC 6128. That's very specific. Is that yes. just because I asked you that previously, or is that a very sort of locked memory in your head? No, no, it's, I remember that quite well. Because, because I, I, you know, I'd never touched a computer before. Um, my dad just brought one home one day and set it up, and that was the only game was was Chucky Egg, which I think he completed actually. And I think that was almost the, the first and last game he ever played. <laughs> um, and then it was sort of handed over to me, and I played various clones of uh, Commodore and Spectrum games that were that were on the Amstrad, um, which was just an awful piece of crap basically. <laughs> but you know, it was it was that, and then there was a BBC machine next door that my friends had, um, and then we got into Elite and things like that, and. The magic of, of of games became clear. And how did that like? How did that come into like you said? Your dad just brought it home. Was that the kind of classic thing of well, this is a new thing. It'll probably help you with your homework, but everyone just uses it to play games on. Or was it like a family thing that everyone used? Or 
I don't remember, in all honesty. I can't remember what the reasoning behind it was. It just it just turned up one day, and yeah, I think I think I got bought a bunch of like edutainment stuff with it that got you know one look and then was dumped kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, beyond that, I think it was just everyone was getting a home computer at that point. And um, did you have like brothers and sisters to play with, or was this like your machine? I didn't at the time. No, I was an only child up until I was, I was a bit older, and. Um, but certainly there was a neighborhood of kids who were all who were all very interested in that kind of stuff um and that, i think that's always been the case for me it's it's always it, it had always been you know neighborhood kids would crowd rounds to play you know whatever the the big thing was and how did you kind of handle having the the amstrad like were you very defensive about it and talking about how it's the best one really or were you just like well this is rubbish but it's fine i can play no, on my I- mates bbc or spectrum I think I knew it was rubbish, and then certainly <laughs> there was, you know, there was there was another kid who had a, a Commodore, another one had a Spectrum, uh, and a couple of BBCs, and I, I think some some other thing, you know, sort of early, maybe like an Archimedes or something like that. I can't remember now, but yeah, there was there was a there was a there was a uh, sort of wide ecosystem of different platforms, um, but I think basically I, I I think I kind of lost interest for a few years after that. Um, and was very much more interested in sort of tabletop RPGs and uh, miniatures and, and role playing and uh, and stuff like that until I think probably I can't remember I think I must have been twelve thirteen when I bought an uh, Amiga five hundred uh, having seen my seen one at my cousin's and it just was such a leap forward from anything that I'd experienced previously. Was there uh, like a specific game that you saw that you're like oh, I need to get back into this? Um, I think initially they they had um, Lemmings and the Killing Game Show, two Psychosis games, which both you know. I mean, I, I don't have any great fondness for either of those games, particularly. But given given how they looked and sounded compared to what I'd seen previously, they were abs- an absolute revelation. And then, of course, when I saw stuff like Stunt Car Racer and Speedball Two and games like that, then yeah, I was absolutely smitten with it. And was that again? Like, was that kind of uh, a kind of whole? Did, did all your friends have Amigas and stuff as well? Did that just carry on through, or did that, that become they, more they niche at that point? They they didn't really. In fact, I think um, at that point, um, there, I think there were probably two or three other people who had either Atari STs or Amigas. But the the sort of love of video games was actually still relatively small. Um, and I think it was sort of, you know, not every kid had a, a gaming machine at that point. You no. know, it's, it's become absolutely ubiquitous now, but it, it really wasn't at that point. And there would be, you know, the kid who had the Mega Drive, the kid who had uh, a Nintendo, and I was just the kid who had the Amiga. And there were one or two other people that, that did as well. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, yeah, that, it still wasn't that kind of like ev- everyone, everyone was sort of gaming at that point. It was still, um, you know, a slightly sort of nerd focused yeah, yeah, yeah. thing yeah and did you like were you kind of i don't know like I, I always talking of the ubiquitousness of them now like i always think back to when i was like i think i'm ever so slightly younger than you um but it was it was properly like i was almost embarrassed about playing games for a long period especially in that kind of awkward early teens were mm. you kind of aware of that or were you just like i don't care it doesn't matter there's plenty of other things for people to think i'm a nerd about so yeah, I mean, I was I was just like a, an absolute alpha nerd outlier of, <laughs> you know, we sat and played Dungeons & Dragons at lunchtime, I collected miniatures, I, you know, invented my own games, I played all the video games I could get my hands on, I just, you know, it just I just didn't really care at that point. Um, and never have, to be honest, I've, I've, it's never been, I've never felt sort of persecuted or kind of mocked for that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think p- partly that's been my, partly... It's it's been sort of down to my own enthusiasm for that sort of stuff. I yeah. think when people see, you know, that you know, I can remember um, even that, you know, even what we, you might, might describe as the sort of jocks in in our school, you know, the, the kids who were very into football and rugby, and you know, they were intrigued. That you know, they were they were picking up my Dungeons and Dragons manuals and saying, "Wow, this looks cool. Can I play?" For the most part, it was. Um, Certainly, there were people who took the piss, but it, I just who cares when it was you know it was providing us with so much entertainment. Absolutely, and no, I, I do think that is that is 
true that like a lot of people that would probably mock you about it are also really into it but they're just kind of insecure to the point where I, you know i'm not going to pretend like i actually like it mm. um i'll just i'll make sure i make fun of them so everyone knows that i'm not really into it even though i'm secretly really into it but i mean um, i think it probably helps that i went to a slightly sort of snooty grammar school in kent okay. <laughs> there was a bit less of that kind of stuff anyway i always think about it in terms of comics like that's always my go-to because i was mocked endlessly for reading comics and i was like a sort of mid-teens and everyone who made fun of me probably loves all the new Marvel films and stuff. Mm. And that's yeah. the, I'm not speaking from a place of bitterness. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, comic comics was my one blind spot growing up, actually. Um, I didn't really encounter comics uh, as anything more than just an, you know, a sort of obscure curiosity until I was at university and someone pulled out a gigantic box full of them and I just sat and read them all. Oh, man, what a, <coughs> what a day. Um, yeah, it was good. It was very good. You, you mentioned there just briefly that you were kind of you would invent games yourself, and I think it's it's quite interesting because you kind of went to press first and then eventually went off to to make your own games. Like, I'm always curious as to when people who kind of make games now kind of realize that these are things made by people, and perhaps I can do this because it's all, especially kind of in the sort of 80s and 90s and stuff that was all very obscured like you, it wasn't clear that these were human i don't know creations. i think it, it was it was pretty pretty clear to me um i mean my, my my ambition then and and to an extent still was to write rpg source books you know i knew that there were authors who were sitting down and getting to write this stuff and it was like damn i want to do that i want to that's quite interesting i wonder if that is like the difference because like most people are very much like didn't realize that video games were made by players but i suppose if you're playing rpg stuff it's much more there's a much more clear distinction because it's like yeah possibly possibly but i mean i also remember at the time i was at school um there was the the other amiga owner had uh, uh amos you know the basic language yeah and he was just sat at home learning it on his own and uh and he'd done some kind of like sort of demo scene stuff and um i said oh let's make a game he was just like yeah of course you know that's just what we'll do with it you know and um we made an incredibly primitive alien breed clone um which sadly i don't think existed i found the discs for it recently but they were horribly corrupted and what was it what was it called um hmm i can't remember now you know I remember that we, we called ourselves Heresy Productions. That <laughs> That's what I was studio. looking for. But Perfect. I can't I can't remember the name of the game now. No, I have to um, I have to dig out those discs again and, and check. But yeah, but yeah, it, it never it never quite reached completion. It was just sort of uh, running around shooting blobs in a big tile based uh, <laughs> maze. But was it but was it something I suppose that you kind of uh you aspire to i mean i suppose it is because you said you still want to do kind of rpg rule books but was it like a a realistic thing that you were thinking about like i want to work in games or was it just these are games and i love these and i'm just going to play them and enjoy them yeah i think at, at that point it very much was just i'm you know I, I didn't really i didn't really analyze it at all i didn't have yeah. any sort of critical kind of position on that stuff at the at that point i mean i certainly i didn't even really see myself as knowing very much about games like certainly when the job at PC Gamer came up. It was my friends all saying, "Oh, you know loads about games. Why don't you apply for it?" You know, and I, I, at the time, I didn't really think much of of, of my knowledge of, of that sort of stuff. And and so, so I sort of said, "Yeah, well, I suppose I could," kind of thing. But I don't think I'll, you know, I don't think I'll be able to compete with these these heavyweights, um, which seems ridiculous now. But at the time, it, you know, it was just I was just another kid who was enjoying this stuff and uh, you know making the most of it when he could. So when did um, that happen then? Was that like university time or older than that? Or It was about a year after university. I, I think I'd lost my job because um, I interviewed quite well. And um, I'd, I'd lost the job on a finance magazine, basically because I just sit and, sat and played uh, Quake all the time. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was deadly dull. It was really boring. Um, so what, like, I, what I, did you have in idea, just to sort of go back a tiny bit like when you went to university what did you do like did you have any particular aims in mind i think um i wanted to be as idle and as useless as possible Perfect. Um, and uh so I, I chose philosophy and it was very much a kind of like yeah try and you know try and make me have a job out of this kind of thing you think about <laughs> that world and um i had a great time doing philosophy it was really good and in fact i even went back after uh university to defend it as non-vocational 
because the Labour government at the time had this idea that all university courses should demonstrate some vocational application, you know, like some kind of like direct training that would lead to a job. Yeah. Um, and the point of philosophy was very much non-vocational because it wasn't about any specific job. It was about, um, you know, abstract thought and be able to, to, to study things like logic and epistemology and stuff that doesn't necessarily have a clear application in uh, an office. But, they, you know, they were... These, those courses were education for education's sake, I think. Um, yeah. I don't think they should have to defend themselves as, you know, being uh, uh, applicable within the wider ecosphere of, of making money for, for your corporate overlords. Um, I'm sure they're regretting that now post-Brexit that there are more people with uh, critical thinking and analytical skills. Possibly, possibly. But certainly um, at the time, I, I didn't think much more other than I don't want to have a job, you know. Fuck everything. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go and uh, I'm gonna go and become a beer philosopher. Um, and so yeah, I didn't really have anything in mind, basically. But of course, I just sat at university and played loads of video games. So, and was uh, that like a big part of university? Like, did you go kind of? Oh, not, not saying like this is my identity, but you're like I'm bringing everything with me. This is like, did you seek out other people who are interested in games in university or was it just, I, did, I didn't, I didn't have to like when I, when I, by the time I got to university, uh, just everyone around me was playing stuff. Um, I think because uh, of course at that point it was the, you know, the arrival of the first PlayStation and it was being pushed into sort of the mass market. Absolutely. Like I, I think people forget what uh, a sea change, the Sony's campaign to, for the, for the original PlayStation was, you know, it was, it was, it made gaming cool. Um, Absolutely, and it, uh, and it completely changed the sort of attitude of everyone towards that sort of stuff. Um, I'm going to put in a weak plug here because I spoke to uh, Jeff Glendening on the show, who was like he was the figurehead behind that whole campaign, and it's just amazing the sort of pushback they got and mm. the success that they built from it. You know, yeah, and it, and 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 I think that's easily ignored now, but it was it was absolutely you know it was revolutionary, um, and of course you know that meant that by the time I got to university. Um, playstations were everywhere and i think there we had the n64 arriving and stuff like that so it was yeah it became um it became golden eye in my flat every you know every day after lectures or often before um <laughs> you know and you'd have you know groups of people arriving just just for that basically um and did so, you yeah, have so much love for like consoles you know because you seem to have grown up with computers did you ever go back to like yeah, I mean, Super I, I Nintendo played, or Mega Drive or anything? I've I've certainly played everything. Um, and uh, actually, as as I was growing up, um, the guy that lived next door to me had a Mega Drive and a Super Nintendo. And so, you know, one evening we'd go and play stuff on my Amiga. The other the next evening we'd go and play Street Fighter or Mario Kart and stuff like that. So yeah, I was very much, um, I was very much in there from the start. And that's always been, um, that's always, it's always been very important to me. But you know, my my focus and my kind of, uh, I guess my sort of where I've put the most of my attention has ended up being on PC um, because it's the sort of ecosystem I have the most time for. It's the one that has the sort of widest um, spread of experiences that you can have. Um, and just like I'm, I'm curious, like because you mentioned you you got into the PC game at like about a year or so after university while you were in university and you're clearly playing a lot of games like were there any sort of specific games or, or moments that kind of perhaps changed your thinking about games to the point where you thought well i want to write about this like you had this uh, desire to talk about things that other people perhaps weren't talking about or was it just like that seems like a cool job i'll go for that um I mean, I, I had to be talked into it by friends. Basically, they saw the advert in PC Gamer and and said, you know, oh, you should do this. But that, but that said, I had followed future publishing's writers certainly since I encountered Amiga Power um, in the nineties. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's odd. Like uh, I I know Stuart Campbell quite well now, and um, you know, I chat to him regularly about politics. And you know, he was my Growing up, he was one of those kind of like rock and roll uh, icons for me. Yeah. You know, th this kind of rebellious uh, video games writer, and um, you know that, that that was an extraordinary kind of moment to realise that oh, I, I I can go and do that too. But I don't think I realised that until long after university. Um, 
and at the time I think I, I knew I wanted to write but I've always kind of I've always written you know ever since I was a kid I've written stories so I knew I wanted to I knew I wanted to write but I wasn't sure quite how to do that yeah um and that's how I initially got a job doing sort of finance newsletter stuff because I just thought I've just got to get a job that is writing whatever that entails yeah um and then you know I just happened to luck out and stumble into so it was there was never a plan but I think I'd I had unconsciously done all the sort of groundwork in, in having followed those magazines religiously and uh, read reviews by Gillen and and, uh, and Campbell and stuff over the years and and having sort of known how to do that stuff. But I think a little bit, certainly a little bit after university, I was massively into Quake 3 and I was playing stuff like Hidden and Dangerous and writing about them just became, you know, it became obvious, an obvious course because you know, there, there was so much to say about this stuff, especially, the, you know, the clan scene in Quake 3 and the... The sort of the sort of depth that the multiplayer stuff got to there, um, it was just an absolutely natural step for me to be able to write about that stuff, and that was very much the reason why I ended up working on PC Gamer was because I knew how to tweak a 56k modem, and I sat and played Quake every night, which I don't think anyone else in the team <laughs> did at the time, and they needed to cover that. It's really interesting, like, and I don't, I genuinely don't mean to keep sort of plugging other episodes, but this is very relevant. Um, I spoke to uh, Christopher Brookmy, you know, the the Scottish writer. And he was obviously massively into Quake. And the way he was describing kind of the, the early days of Quake, which I kind of, I must have come to Quake much later, um, it was to him, it was like the new punk. It was, this is a very much a DIY culture. Like, as you say, like people sort of tweaking modems and the whole clan scene. It just, I, I, I guess I wasn't really aware of that. I was maybe a little bit too young. Like, mm. did you feel that sense that this is, a new subculture you know very a very small one but nonetheless you know oh absolutely you know and i wrote about that extensively in in um the book that i that i wrote um about 10 years ago now um this gaming life um yes yes of course which you know you know the i think it was it was the, it was the gamer identity was very much forming at that point people were building you know building an identity around it and um you know uh, We've seen some of the negative side effects of that identity politics uh, playing out in the, in the last <laughs> few years, um, but I think you know it has had positive, uh, it has had positive sort of aspects, and um, I certainly felt those at the time. And you know, I've continued to be friends with um, the people that I played Quake with to this day, like um, Dan, who um, has done a lot of the sort of additional coding on big robot games is someone I met playing Quake uh, in about 2000. So That's we've, amazing. You know, and have stayed in touch ever since. Yeah. So so what 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 was kind of your... I don't know, like, I, this is an extraordinarily broad question, but, like, are there any kind of sort of standout memories or, or games uh, about kind of your early days at a PC gamer, like things like... I mean, I suppose everything would kind of blow your mind a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Um I mean, I was the first person in the world to review Half-Life 2, which was which was a really big deal because Half-Life had been incredibly important to me, um, you know. And so, to, you know, to, to go and do that was uh, was quite the, quite the experience. And how 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 does that like? If you're the first person, does that just mean that the, you you were able to sort of release it first, or did you play it first, or like what was the setup? Yeah, I, 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 I was I was the first person to play it, first person to review it in the world, and the same same with Portal actually. Um, just because I, you know, it just happened. I mean, this came about because of the sort of commercial deal struck by uh, the editors at PC Gamer and stuff. But yeah. for me as a writer, it was this incredible kind of wow, you know, I get to do this kind of thing. Um, That's quite a lot of pressure as well. It didn't feel like it at the time. It felt very. I think the, the other thing is, is, is to remember that this was kind of before the m mass pressure of social media and um, the internet. Like, that just didn't exist at the time. There were forums um, and chat rooms and things like that. But it was just, it was nothing like it is now in terms of the amount of pressure on people, in terms of, you know, getting the score right or, or you know, or whatever that yeah. means. I maybe, I, 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 I get that for Half-Life too, but... Surely with Paul, that was a little bit more... Maybe not, actually. Maybe not. I'm trying to think of the dates. That just seems much more recent than it is, perhaps, Paul. No, it's still 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Ridiculous. So how, like, 
that must have been amazing as well though because you know the, those two games in particular are so kind of iconic but to be like the first one of the first people playing them and have no context mm. for them i mean that's amazing that's such a yeah treat. so so I, I i played portal significantly before the orange box came out and it was very much just them sort of just asking me to step into an office and say i'll oh, sit down and play this you know it's this this game we're working on and obviously it was portal and it was you know pretty amazing <laughs> um yeah, yeah that, I, I just can't imagine kind of going into that not knowing anything about it necessarily like that must have just yeah, been mind-blowing it's, it's, it seems weird now doesn't it, it I, don't, I don't know like it i feel like some of the stuff that seems like it's mind-blowing now made a lot more sense sort of just in the flow of things you know like uh, the the idea oh they've made this first person puzzle game yeah you know that's what a logical thing you know like the that was almost suggested by half-life 2's physics puzzles and stuff yeah, absolutely. right you know, that, that there would be this I think I even said at the time of Half-Life 2, I, I reckon this will, you know, issue, you know, sort of usher in an era of um, first-person puzzle stuff because now they've proven that you can manipulate physics in first-person really well. Um, it will produce that. But I don't think really that happened, certainly not in mainstream way, until Portal uh, when it came out. You know, there was the, you know, there was this, the spatial aspect to it as well. Yeah. And since then, we have seen a whole bunch of first-person puzzle games. Um, it was the tonal stuff in Portal as well that I, I always find so like amazing. The kind of the, I, I still think it's one of the best kind of narratives in a video game because it was also unexpected and the way it plays out is so, it's such a sort of deft touch. Like it's a really impressive thing, mm. you know, and it's so funny. Like it's just there's so many amazing things in Portal. Like aside from just purely the the mechanics at the center of it, you know. Yeah, I mean Valve's loss of interest in the the sort of narrative game like that it has to be one of the great tragedies of, of game development in in you know in recent memory um the idea that they could have kept on making those kind of games uh to that level is you know an extraordinary thing and the fact they they so far at least haven't is you know a, a real shame yeah. and i think and certainly with with eric and chet leaving um and and the other writers too um the you know the the minds behind that stuff have, have, have gone now so yeah, I don't think we will see it's like again. Not certainly not uh, certainly not from Valve. Well, well, let's hope someone else uh, breaks the mold some other way. Um, yeah. I'm going to take a, a brief aside, Jim, to do some relatively quick-fire questions. Mm-hmm. So, um, Jim, if you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul, what game are you best at? Speedball Two. Okay, was that like a a kind of childhood's rite of passage and you you were the champion of your neighborhood yeah i mean uh, i, I played people too with everyone who would sit down and play it with me and i would hammer them always um <laughs> for years and years i think i still played that all the way up to university which i kept the amiga with me and, and kept kept playing it um yeah it's just a, it's, a, it's a masterpiece of a game anyway but uh, it's one that i just couldn't help playing over and over and over and, and mastering and yeah, I think uh, Death would probably have a hard time. I, I'm still amazed that there hasn't been kind of more of that genre. I guess Rocket League is the closest in recent times. Mm, um, but yeah. yeah, it's such a rich vein. Um, are you a, a particularly competitive gamer? Have you ever been locked in particularly oh, fierce God, yeah. high score yeah. battles? Yeah? yeah, yeah. I mean, not not in high score battles so much, but certainly, you know, in Quake, uh, playing Quake 3, I played hours and hours every day to improve you know, my, you know, my my accuracy and you would do everything I could to improve that in terms of the, the, you know, the, the, the the whole sort of quake thing of changing your configuration and reducing the sort of graphic settings and getting the sensitivity just right and just the right mouse and all that kind of stuff. And then when I got into Eve online fleet commanding later on, um, I totally threw away a fleet early on in my career, just completely fucked it. And, um, I, I was so pissed off with myself. I never <laughs> made that mistake again and became, you know, really formidable just by sort of force of, of, of will and sort of competitiveness, um, uh, well, which, I've, which I've sort of lost in recent years, which is a shame. Well, on that sort of subject then, like if, if you are prone to such things, what is your, your worst rage quit? I don't really rage quit. Not, I can't think. I can't think of... The time that I've done, I mean, I'm sure I have, but yeah, I'm not. It's not. It's not something I'm prone to, and I can't really remember doing so. I'm sure it was in Eve at some, you know, <laughs> some disgusting failure on my own part. Um, has there ever been a, a game that's kind of 
consumed your life to the point where it's become a problem and you've had to delete it or uninstall it no i mean that's kind of the kind of the joy of being a games journalist is that you (laughs) you become hideously obsessed with something then you can you can write about that hideous obsession and people will pay you um so uh not really i mean the development of the signal from tolva got a bit much and i was spending a little bit too long tweaking variables and rotating rocks but uh certainly (laughs) in terms of playing a game uh, we i've never reached a a problem point um okay do you have uh do you have like a a chicken soup game a game that you would go back to for for comfort that's always been stalker i think the original stalker chernobyl um just because i find that the sort of engagement in it the fact that it's quite tough and um things don't tend to sort of happen in the same way twice I, i i just really like that um Although more recently, my sort of relaxation game has been uh, the open world Mad Max one that came out a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Which is, I don't know, like, I, there's not much to it, really. But I just like the fact that you can just drive around this beautiful desert and occasionally beat up some punks. And I think great. that's why it's so good, is that there's not too much to do. It's very much like, a, it, it's one of the few kind of open world games in the past couple of years that's really kind of had the right rhythm for how I play games, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's just, it's it just a really it, perfect little bite-sized chunks. It felt it felt sort of minimalist is the wrong word for it, but it felt um, streamlined somehow. Yeah, there was quite a lot to it, but it but I mean, it wasn't sort of heaving with stuff in the way that like an Assassin's Creed game is or yeah. whatever. It's a um, real kind of perfect balance of busy work where you know mm. there's just enough things to entice you, but not enough to overwhelm. It's it's yeah. a really good game. Um, given the kind of the the breadth of emotion that video games are able to convey um i always find that that laughter is the the rarest so jim what games have made you laugh i think i think probably mostly um if it's if it's video games certainly multiplayer stuff i think yeah. just just the sort of situational things that you know that that would that, that would get thrown up by um, you know, playing Doom with a friend over a coaxial cable and, and aggroing every monster on the level. Or um, <laughs> I can I can remember once when because uh, the old sort of serial, you know, when you just link up two PCs without actually using a network cable, it'd just be a, like a serial port, and the sort of the, so the data rate on them is incredibly low. That we, um, we made the biggest armies we could in uh, Command and Conquer and just sent them at each other. And it, but it sort of lagged out for a few seconds, and uh, and then it sort of uh, it, it updated, and there was just a burning battlefield with a single soldier <laughs> left in the middle of it, and we uh, laughed, laughed pretty long and hard at that. That's a, that's a really good like cut. I mean, that that's kind of one of the problems with with why games aren't necessarily that funny is is the the timing of it. But that's that's amazing that the hardware enabled this perfect bit of comic timing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's I think it's difficult for games themselves to be funny. Um, aside from you know good good script writing, but certainly the the sort of mad slapstick that you can come up with, um, but certainly in multiplayer games is is always good. And you know the and the stories that John and 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 the others tell about uh, the Soldner games being ridiculously buggy and stuff like that. It, you know, those those always provide a laugh. Um, but I think yeah, intentional comedy um, in in games is is certainly rare. It's a tricky one. Um, well, like just from those kind of answers you gave there, like there's clearly a few kind of games that you mentioned that have um, fed into the games that you're you're making now. You know, like Stalker is is you can see traces of that in all the stuff that you've done. Mm. Um, and I mean, I guess like Far Cry Two and um, uh, what game am I thinking of? No, it's gone. I think um, I mean I think for, for, for me, Stalker came closest to the sort of open world we were promised. Um, yes. And I said this a few times about different games. Um, and I certainly think that's true of Eve Online in terms of it being close to the sort of persistent online world we were promised. Um, that there there was a period in which you know there was the, the, these sort of technologies started to emerge and when people could sort of be, you know because it was an imaginative medium and, and people who kind of engaged with it were imaginative you could see the kind of possibilities that they were going to be there yeah and i and i feel like stalker with the open world thing is the only one ever to get reasonably close to that um because of how sort of simulationist it was 
Um, and I, you know, there's lots of games that have done open, done extraordinary things with open worlds, but I, I just still feel like none of them has the same kind of. Um, I mean, you play Stalker now, and lots of it is is a little sort of shonky and slapstick, and you know the the, the engine's starting to to age and stuff. Yeah, but I think the sort of the dynamics that could come out of it, you know, I think I said earlier, it doesn't it doesn't really play the same way twice. I, the fact that it had you know enough variables for those firefights to go down differently each time just makes it really interesting. Um, and I don't think anyone has really explored the the sort of factions fighting each other to any great depth. Um, I mean, we touched on it in Tolva uh, yeah. and in Sir to some extent, but I think there's um, I think there's I think there's lots more to be explored there. Um, I, I feel like both the open world game and the MMO fell into quite specific commercially accepted formats. Yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. And I feel like that has sort of precluded there being any greater expir- exploration of those forms. Have you um, played I, I, Zelda? Have you played those. the latest Zelda? I have, yeah. It's fantastic. And it, I mean, it does so much right in that regard that you can't help. Uh, but I don't know. The, other, the, other, the thing I almost immediately felt about Zelda is that everyone will love this, but you will barely see any impact on the way other games are developed. That was my feeling about it. Um, anyway, in... The, in I've, I've always said this about Eve is that it will take, you know, 15, 20 years for someone who loved it and understood it as a player to get into a position where they can influence a development studio enough to be able to make something that will, you know, actually learn the lessons yeah, yeah, yeah. from it. And I feel that if I felt like that was Zelda, it feels like it has learned the lessons of loads of stuff, but the lessons it teaches probably won't appear in other games for a long time. Well, I mean, uh, that that kind of ties neatly into into kind of your journey through games. So, like, when did you start thinking about like leaving to to make your own games? So was that a plan a couple of years in the making, or was it like, oh, we're going to sell no, RPS, so let's oh, it was make games? I guess no, it was never a plan. It was it was always completely by accident. In that um, Channel Four were making educational games, and uh, I'd written something that. Uh, Alice Taylor, the commissioning editor, had seen, and she said, "Oh, could, you know, let's talk about whether you could make one of these games." Um, and I'd been talking a little bit with um, James Carey and Tom Betts, both independently at that point, about you know what we could do to to make something. And then um, this opportunity came along to, to to make an educational kids game for Channel Four, and so we pitched a couple of ideas, and then they went for one of them. We ended up making this thing called Fallen City, which sadly got because uh, they basically that kind of project got canned within a few weeks of us launching the game. Um, it sort of disappeared without a trace, but it meant that we'd had a sort of free trial run at making a game. Yeah, um, and the money that we had left over uh we put aside to build some procedural stuff which uh, tom had been busily working on anyway in his spare time and that became so you're being hunted uh so it was it was it was a sort of happy accident or a series of accidents really rather than an intentional plan and um, do you do you code like what is your kind of role in it or are you just kind of creative director in terms of the the company the big robot yeah I'm, I'm more project manager than anything else um so I, I do work directly on the game in terms of um setting variables and uh directing how things should be set up and i built all of the tolva well m- most of the tolva totally did a bit as well uh most of the, of the tolva world um and building all the expansion at the minute so i don't have any kind of uh i don't have any co- coding ability really um and I don't have any artistic ability, but I, I fill in all the other bits as best I can. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, though, like, so do you have this kind of, you know, given this opportunity to sort of have have this taste of game development, and did that, like, did you just suddenly have, start having lots of ideas and, like, have this desire to, like, oh, I really want to do this? Or was there just something about it that made you think, I really want to try this more? I think there's something here. Not necessarily. I think it was it was more that there was a clear opportunity to do something um, with the channel four thing. And once we'd had a taste of that, it was very clear that we should continue 
exploring the sort of ideas that we'd become interested in. Um, and I, I'd certainly I'd been interested in Tom's sort of procedural generation things for a long time. Um, and so to just do more of that uh, was it just it was just logical that you know, yeah. we, should, we should we should we should keep that going um, because it, 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 you know the sort of creative partnerships that I set up through that have been really fruitful and made no sense to discard them. Basically, I'm not. I mean, this is the thing. I think I wouldn't say, despite my kind of like long term immersion in an engagement with games i wouldn't say i was totally wedded to games as as you know the thing that i feel like makes me and defines me i certainly feel much more like a writer than i do a game developer yeah um but when the opportunity is there and you know the you have those relationships that are kind of bearing fruit in that way and, and i think people and and the and people and project management are the sort of some of the toughest parts of, of making games so when you've got kind of a good you know a good situation with both of those you you've got to take you've got to make the most of it um absolutely you know, we've, we've certainly enjoyed doing so yeah what, what i find really interesting though is you know you just said there you know you think yourself more as a writer but of the games you've made you know they seem to be very much kind of um embracing the kind of the the kind of randomness of games you know they're all very procedural and, and that's kind of what they're about they're creating open worlds where mm. anything can happen i just find it interesting that you're kind of drawn to those type of games rather than you know something much more prescriptive and writerly mm. i suppose like the writing is really good in them but it's not that's not what what makes the game if you know what i mean yeah i mean i think that i think that speaks to my lack of interest in purely narrative linear games um I mean, I do appreciate them, and I can appreciate the craft in them, and I enjoy playing them. I mean, I've, I've, I've there, are, there are games in the last few years that, I, you know, the Dishonored games, for instance. I think you know everything about them, including their writing, has been absolutely amazing, and I've, I've loved them. Um, but I wouldn't say that was the, the the aspect of games that interests me specifically. I think I'm much more interested in how a space can be created for a whole bunch of things to happen in, um, and that's kind of what we've tried to do with the with the games that we've um the games that we've made and so um, like what what has been i don't know with that sort of thing with the kind of procedural thing at what point do you kind of um decide on the the, the tone of it you know like so you're being hunted is, is a very specific style you know the game i feel like you could have gone various different ways with that you know because it is procedural but mm. you've 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 chosen this very specific kind of style and tone. Like, where did that come from? And I guess at what point do you kind of lock that down? I think it's just it's just an organic process. You know, it comes out of the art that you that you commission. It comes out of the ideas that you know you have in conversation with the other designers and programmers and artists. Um, they, they've 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 been very kind of like um, all our games have been that sort of organic communal kind of thing, but generally driven by a single vision. Um, so, I mean, James was very much the driving force behind uh, So Being Hunted and our conversations about um, the countryside and, you know, sort of mocking English sort of class war and things yeah. um, very much kind of informed the direction that we ended up going in. Um, and likewise with Tolva, the... Um, you know, our interest in landscapes generally and in, in a certain type of science fiction ended up kind of setting that stuff up. Um, and I feel like um, I suppose a lot of my interest in writing comes from pen and paper RPGs. And so when I'm, when I, when I'm games mastering something, I tend to take a bunch of notes and create a sort of scenario, but then we'll ad lib as much as I possibly can yeah. of the rest of it. And I feel like where you can make that true in video games, you should, um, because it even if it's an illusion, it provides that sort of sense of freedom and escape that I think the best of those kind of game experiences provide. Absolutely. Um, like, just to kind of bring us up to date, I suppose, like over the past, like since you've moved into development more sort of full-time, are there games that stand out for you as being particularly uh, impactful or inspirational in for whatever reason? I think that the, the, perhaps this, the difference in having moved into game development is that I tend to notice the craft a bit more now. 
I tend to notice a little bit more about how people have done something or how difficult it would have been to produce a particular thing. Yeah. Um, certainly Arcane's games, uh, Prey and the Dishonored games, have been the real standout ones for me uh, in the last few years. But I think there's lots of smaller games that I, have, I tend to have a lot more appreciation for now. Um, the Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor is sort of an obscure one, I think. Okay, um, no, I don't know. I don't know that. But it's... Uh, it's very lo-fi, I think, made just by one person. But it's absolutely fascinating, and it's non-violent, and uh, has like sort of lots of odd kind of systems in it. Um, equally, uh, there's a game called Knock Knock by the people who made Pathologic, um, and it's a 2D cartoon horror game. Which, on the surface of it, doesn't sound uh, particularly uh, sort of frightening, and yet it's it's extraordinary. It's an it's an absolutely brilliant piece of um, uh design it's genuinely frightening uh it's very strange um and it's very simple um which i really appreciate sunless sea was one that i felt like um there was a sort of level of brilliance in the way that it um delivered story absolutely uh, in, in yeah. a sort of open world uh, i thought that was fantastic um more recently darkwood um is a third-person survival horror thing, top-down uh, by a Polish studio, I think. And it's just very, very weird, and it does some fantastic stuff. Like there's dream sequences in which you pick up stuff in the dream, and then they're still in your inventory when you wake up, uh, which has this weird kind of dissonant effect. That's amazing. Um, there's some, it's just some really great stuff in it. Um, and Teleglitch was—I uh, actually say, uh, Teleglitch was was a massive influence on me. And I would really, and, and it kind of completely returned me to that sort of Amiga era appreciation of sort of relatively fast top down things. I'd love to make a game along those lines at some point. Um, and then uh, sort of one of our peers in the, you know, our, our probably our most successful peer outside of sort of Daisy and Rust, I think um, is the long dark um, that came out the year after Surded, And I think is the one to truly nail survival as a as a single player experience and as a um as a theme for the game um but yeah i think uh, that's that since i've been making games i think yeah probably the long dark is the one that has made me go damn you know i wish <laughs> i wish i could, <laughs> wish i could have made that because it's, it's it's a masterpiece it's like i mean you do still dabble in kind of freelance writing and stuff yeah you still do the odd bit here and there or do you, uh, are you totally cut I've off? Done, I've, I haven't done much in the last two years. I think I've written two or three pieces. Uh, so I haven't done a lot. Uh, I'll probably do a little bit more next year just cause I, I should have a little bit more free time. Yeah. But, just cause uh, there's so much good stuff. Like I wonder if you, if you miss that side of it of like really getting into games. I do in that I find myself composing stuff in my head that I would write about, you know, Darkwood for example, was one that I played and thought, yeah, I could really write about this. Um, and, you know, end up, you know, I, I, I'm, my writing process tends to be that I will just think about stuff and come up with sort of phrases and angles before I put anything down. And so I tend to write like, a, you know, a single pass and I'll get everything out in one go. Yeah. Um, and I, I felt myself doing that part of it, but without the getting everything out because I don't never, never actually sit down and do the writing. So I can I can definitely go back to it. And I have done I've, I've done a little bit over sort of the summer. Um and there's some non-game stuff that I'm going to be doing uh, in the next in the next couple of months that um, I'm going to get a kick out of as well. I think. Cool. Um, that's but, but I, I do I do miss it. I do I do miss the the games writing. But at the same time, I did do that for 15 years. Yeah. And I did I did I did the works. You know, I did the book and the website and wrote for <laughs> everyone. So I, you know, I feel I feel like I I hit uh, the level cap when it came to get to games journalism. Um, well, just just to kind of close out then, I guess, like, are there, like, have you retained that kind of love of games that you had when you were younger? Like, do you feel as excited and optimistic? Um, I mean, obviously, it's hard to recapture that. But, you know, at the age you are now, do you feel, still feel excited about the future of video games? I think, yeah, I am, I'm definitely excited about them. But I think I'm more excited long term than, than short term. I think, I think I understand the sort of rate of change and progress now having experienced you know several decades of it um you know I'm, I'm i will be fascinated to be a grandparent and see what my my uh my grandchildren are, are up to basically 
um cool i th- I think we've covered pretty much everything jim but if there's anything that kind of hasn't come up that you wanted to mention uh, please take that opportunity now or just let people know where they can find your video games and stuff um so you can follow me on uh, uh twitter and my handle is just jim rossignol and if you're interested in our games then it's big robot limited and those are our our best social media contact points i think cool was that good for you jim was that enjoyable that was a lot of fun Yep. Good, good.